everyone, and welcome to Episode 5 of the Dazon Digest. I'm April Dyer, a liaison clinical pharmacist with Dazon. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Schaefer Spires, the medical director for Dazon. Hi, Schaefer. Good morning, April. How are you? Doing well. How are you? Fine, thank you. Thanks for having me on this morning. Yeah, thank you for joining me. So today, we're recording this podcast on Friday, January 15th. It is important to note this date because we will be discussing the Dutch guidelines for antibiotic use in patients with COVID-19. Since recommendations related to COVID are still evolving, it's important to keep this date in mind as you evaluate the information discussed in this talk. The Dutch guidelines were published in September 2020 in Clinical Microbiology and Infection. The Dutch Working Party on Antibiotic Policy convened a multidisciplinary expert panel to provide evidence-based recommendations on antibacterial therapy in adult patients who were hospitalized with suspected or proven COVID-19. In Dazon, we continue to see widespread use of empiric antibiotics for patients being admitted with COVID-19. A meta-analysis by Langford and colleagues evaluated literature from 2019 to April 2020 to look at studies printed in English that included patients who had COVID-19 and that also reported the incidence of bacterial infections. One of the findings of this meta-analysis was that approximately 72% of patients received antibiotics. As stewards, when we think about the need for empiric antibiotic therapy, it's important to consider the likelihood of a patient having a true infection. So Dr. Spires, are bacterial co-infections common in patients with COVID-19, and should we use antibiotics in patients who present with COVID? That's a good question, April, especially since we see so many of them receiving antibiotics from the get-go. Short answer is we do not think many of these patients have co-infections on presentation. Before we go any further into this, you know, when we talk about co-infections, you and I are, are, are using the definition as somebody presenting with a COVID pneumonia at the same time of a bacterial pneumonia. Whereas we'll talk about it in a little bit later or a minute here, the secondary infections were those defined as a second infection that developed a few days into the hospitalization. And so according to you know the Langford meta-analysis and of course several of the case series they have described, and even the more recent case series that was described by the Hopkins group, bacterial co-infection on presentation of a COVID patient is very rare. In fact, it, it's, I think it's safe to say it's definitely less than 5% of patients present with a bacterial co-infection, and it's probably even closer to 1% to 3%. Uh, this meta-analysis currently shows about 3.5%. And then you know, the meta-analysis is something that is potentially you know, susceptible to any, just as any meta-analysis is susceptible to, but the, the difficulty is kind of having a homogenous definition for bacterial co-infections. And I think, you know, for instance, a lot of the early case series coming out of China for COVID patients are show that it's, it's less than 1% of these patients have bacterial co-infections. But some of the later case series have a little more defined uh, definition for it. It, it. The numbers seem to go up a little bit, but it still seems to be very rare. So it looks like co-infection on admission really isn't very common in patients with COVID-19. So what about secondary bacterial infections or those that develop after admission in these patients? Now, th this is something that does happen a little more frequently that we can tell. And, and also, you know, anecdotally, as an infectious disease consultant, like these are the patients that we get consulted on 
not just the run-of-the-mill COVID patients that are admitted on the medicine floor, but we're seeing the patients that end up getting secondary infections. And as far as we can tell, at least looking at this meta-analysis, this occurs in about 15% of the patients. Now, I think we, we all need to realize, too, these are a little bit different populations than just the COVID patients that are presenting, you know, on day one. These are patients that have been in the hospital for several days, on average about uh, five days before they develop a secondary infection. So this is something that we have to keep in the back of our mind, but also something that I don't think we can necessarily prevent with giving more antibiotics. So for instance, you know, me treating somebody with a, uh, a course of ceftriaxone and azithromycin, while it may treat the infection that they currently have, it does not prevent them from getting infection during their second week of hospitalization. And so just because about 15% of these patients do go on to develop a secondary infection does not necessarily warrant giving antibiotics up front either. Thank you for making that distinction too. So when we're treating patients, of course, you know, we always worry about missing a potential infection and that's something that we don't want to do because we don't want our patients to have negative outcomes. So do the Dutch guidelines provide any guidance on how to rule out infection in adults with COVID-19? Yeah, that's a good point. April, I think that's why you bring out the Dutch guidelines today is because they do kind of give us some guidance on how to rule out. And even if you can't rule out, what do you do from there on? And so they recommend kind of like the IDSA's community-acquired pneumonia guidelines. You want to try to get as much information up front as possible so that you can act on it uh, as it comes back in, in a few days later. And so if you feel obligated because of the clinical scenario to start antibiotics, you want to make sure you get blood and sputum cultures. Pneumococcal urinary antigen is, it can be helpful. Legionella antigen uh, can also be helpful. And that way you can act on these as they start coming back 24, 48 hours. There's a lot of other tests that is used to determine the level of inflammation, you know, indirect markers of inflammation like procalcitonin and CRP and ferritin and, and even lactic acid. And, and uh, you know, some people think these are very helpful. Personally, these tend to kind of add to the story that you're seeing unfold in front of you as you look at the patient. And I think they can be helpful to kind of convince you of what you think is happening. But the Dutch guidelines are specific in such that they believe that antibiotics, if they're started empirically, can for the most part, be stopped after 48 hours if, if these tests come back and do not indicate the involvement of bacterial pathogens. Let me say this too, April, before we move on. I, I think this is what uh, our hospitalists who are admitting these COVID patients tend to do right now. I think as we get more and more familiar with the COVID patients, we are not as obligated to treat them with uh, empiric antibiotic therapy However, sometimes, you know, they show up with a low bar infiltrate and uh, severe fevers and maybe some pleuritic pain. And as you're sitting there waiting on the pneumococcal antigen to come back or a culture to come back, it's, it's not unreasonable to put them on ceftriaxone and doxy or ceftriaxone and zithro. And, and, then, and then they are very quick to, to pull them off these when these tests come back negative. Thank you, Schaefer. I know that in the meta-analysis by Langford and colleagues, the vast majority of antibiotics prescribed, about 74%, were third-generation cephalosporins and fluoroquinolones. And the Dutch guidelines did not identify an ideal antibiotic regimen for patients with suspected or confirmed COVID-19 due to a lack of data. 
if we suspect bacterial co-infection, which antibiotics should be administered to patients and what should be considered as part of antibiotic selection? Well, this is a uh, question that as we're sitting here at our desks, it should be a very easy answer. But I understand, you know, when you're sitting at the front lines and you're looking at somebody who's sick, it's, it's not so easy because you feel obligated sometimes to cover everything that you can think of. But you look at this meta-analysis and some other studies that show what the pathogens that we're seeing when there is a bacterial co-infection or community-acquired pneumonia, it, it really does not look like the uh, bacterial pneumonias are, are that much different in etiology than a, a regular old community-acquired pneumonia. And so uh, it, it, they, there is suggestion that the atypical pathogens, such as Legionella and Mycoplasma, may be less of an issue. But for the most part, we still want to think about, you know, strep pneumo, H flu. And then, you know, after that, I think it is Staph aureus and some of the gram negatives. And then eventually, if they have uh, significant risk factors for Pseudomonas or, or MRSA, uh, those things you have to think about. And I think one thing that I'd like to point out too, nobody's going to fault anybody for giving a really sick patient who's in septic shock and you're not entirely sure what the infection is coming from. Uh, nobody's going to fault you for giving a vank and zosin, uh, or at least zosin. And it's just the important part of that is as you assess the patient daily is to, is to be able to optimize the antibiotic therapy. And so if we, we see somebody you think has a COVID pneumonia, but is also in shock, I think it's very reasonable to, to broaden, give them broad spectrum antibiotics. Uh, but that's, that's not necessarily necessary, I guess, for, for someone who's uh, you know, ill uh, from a hypoxic standpoint and has a pneumonia and it's not requiring mechanical ventilation or anything like that serious. I think it's reasonable to give them ceftriaxone Zithromycin, Doxy. Thank you. I know we are all trying to be good stewards of antibiotics during the COVID-19 pandemic. However, workflows at our hospitals have changed drastically. I can speak for our pharmacy colleagues when I say that there have been many tasks added to the pharmacy workflow surrounding data collection for the emergency use authorizations, increased clinical loads due to increases in patient volumes, and some are now playing a role in vaccine deployment. I know that many prescribers are also facing challenging workloads and often working outside of their specialty areas and comfort zones. With all that being said, what do you think are some good strategic approaches to keep antibiotic stewardship initiatives going during the pandemic? Yeah, this is a good point, uh, April. And, and there's even been published studies showing that antibiotic stewardship has tended to take a back, back seat since the COVID pandemic and everybody is so overwhelmed. But it it, it is more clear than ever uh, to me that we need to be an all hands on deck, uh, multidisciplinary team, uh, teamwork approach here. I mean, I, I, I know several of you guys have told me since you're so in touch with your sites that the pharmacists are, are, are just overwhelmed. And, uh, you know, as a ID clinician, I am rather dependent on, on the pharmacist to help you know, keep me in line and, and make sure I'm doing the best thing for my patients. You know, things like remind me to put a stop date on my antibiotics and, you know, following up with uh, culture data in real time. And, you know, things like, you know, a negative PCR uh, for MRSA from a swab in a patient with pneumonia, like these things, uh, you know, 
the pharmacist on the unit is so good at helping me uh, be able to stop bank uh, right when that uh, information comes back instead of the next day. And, you know, these are things that I feel like, unfortunately, as the workflow gets disrupted by the busyness, that they start uh, falling through. And so we, we all need to be aware of this. And, and I think we all need to play a role here. I think you and I uh, often say in stewardship, that it's not something that somebody can do for you. It's something that uh, we all have to have to do uh, on a daily basis, anyways. And so this 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 pandemic and the overwhelming number of patients and sick patients uh, is really brings that uh, to the forefront. We all need to play a role in in doing this and setting. You know, if we are going to have, for instance, if we are going to give somebody empiric antibiotics, you you put the stop date at five days because it's it's you know the patients with pneumonia don't need more than five days unless they're not getting better and then you put seven days or you know on your daily rounds as you see the patient you make sure uh you ask yourself what day antibiotics do they, do they do we need to optimize do we need to change them um or can we stop them just like you would do for a central line or uh you know foley catheter like we need to kind of get in this routine so that we can all play a role um, in making sure the, the uh, patients are getting what they need and no more, no less. Thank you, Schaefer. Those are some great strategies. We know that well, many you. of our frontline stewards and clinicians may be familiar with the Dutch guideline, but we do hope that this is a podcast that you can share with other staff and train them on antibiotic de-escalation in patients with COVID-19. And and efforts to help um, reduce antibiotic use at your sites. Thank you, Schaefer, for joining us today for this important talk. Of course, thanks for having me, April. I'd also like to thank the other liaison clinical pharmacists, Libby Dodds-Ashley, Melissa Johnson, Travis Jones, and Angelina Davis. And thank you all for joining us today for the Days on Digest episode number five. 